I would ask you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 10, which is our passage for study this morning, Revelation chapter 10. And when you have that passage, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's word while I read this passage to us as we continue our way through this glorious book. Revelation chapter 10, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll opened in his hand, and he put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will, be, there will no longer be a delay, but in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. And praise God for his word. Well, I, I vividly remember sitting in chapel one morning as a college student at the Master's College, and I was expecting another sermon or another lecture from a visiting professor or another pastor. But what happened that morning was quite unexpected. It was unusual for us. It was quite different. Uh, a large man, I remember him being a, a large man with a very long beard, got on the stage and he said that he had memorized the entire book of Revelation, and he was going to recite the entire book for us during the chapel that morning. Now, his voice was deep, which I thought was quite fitting for this book. And what really stood out to me, stood out to me, was not so much that he had recited it, but it was the way that he recited the book. Uh, there was emotion, right? There, there was pathos. He was impacted by what he was saying to us, even as he was speaking these words of God to us, it was clear that he hadn't just memorized it. It was clear that he had devoured it, you know, that he had digested it, that he'd absorbed it, that it had become a part of him. And so as he was speaking forth God's word in that way, he was moved by it. And as a result, we were moved by it. I remember just listening for 45 minutes transfixed at what this man was doing, blessing us through being one who deeply knew God's word and was able to recite it to us in that way. I thought about that this week as I looked at this chapter, because in this chapter you see the Apostle John is given a command, ultimately by God, that he should eat the scroll. And what that means is that he would absorb the content, that he would take it in deeply, that he would be transformed by it, because he had a commission, and the commission was that he would proclaim truth to others. And that's the picture that you see in this passage. It's, it's really a commissioning 
service for John or a recommissioning service where once again he's called to the prophetic task of speaking forth the revelation and the truth of God's word. And as we look in this passage, it's very clear that John, he wasn't just to, you know, look over the message. He wasn't just to kind of nibble around the edges. When, when he's commanded to eat it, the idea is absorb it, take it in, treasure it, feast upon it. And that, of course, is what John did. He assimilated the message. Now, that's really the task of everyone who would preach God's word. It's one of the things that we're going to highlight this morning is that the task of everyone who would teach God's word is that we would treasure God's word, we would take it in, we would absorb it so that we could then be used by God to share it with others so that God would take his truth and bless them. We're going to see that as we study this chapter together this morning. So we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Last week we were in chapter 9 and we looked at uh, what happened when the fifth and the sixth trumpets were blown uh, we saw that the men and women who will be alive in the world at that time, they're going to be characterized by sexual immorality, by idolatry, even by sorcery and by demon worship. And yet God, who is just in those trumpets, is going to be unleashing upon the world judgment and judgment in the form of these demonic beings that will first torment, but then after be empowered to kill, but only a certain amount, while God continues to warn the world of final judgment a final judgment that's coming. And this morning, as we look at chapter 10, we're going to find out that that final judgment is right around the corner. There's not going to be any more delay. And that's really what this passage brings forward. It's really the truth that this passage brings forward here as we're working our way through Revelation is that final judgment is a reality. And once again, God is warning the world of that. We're going to talk about that this morning. As we look at Revelation chapter 10, we find ourselves once again in an interlude. So when we finished the sixth seal, and before we got to the seventh seal, there was an interlude, and there were two visions, and those visions were given to us to instruct God's people and to encourage God's people. Well, now in chapter 10, and we'll see it in chapter 11 as well, we'll find once again, now between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there's another interlude with two visions that are given to instruct and to encourage God's people. There's a vision of a mighty angel with a scroll that we're going to be looking at this morning. And then we're going to see that there's a vision of two witnesses who will prophesy for 1,260 days. And we'll see that, Lord willing, next week as we study God's word. Again, we're looking this morning at chapter 10. We're looking at this vision of an angel with a scroll, a mighty angel coming down from Heaven and what happens in this chapter really is, once again, a prophetic commissioning for the Apostle John. We're going to see that as we study this passage together this morning. We're going to first do an exposition of the passage, and then we're going to look at four truths that this passage contains. Four truths. If you're taking notes this morning, the four truths we're going to look at from this passage. First, Christians must internalize God's Word. Christians must internalize God's Word. Second, Christians must proclaim all of God's word. Christians must proclaim all of God's word. Third, Christians must proclaim God's word to everyone. Christians must proclaim God's word to everyone. And fourth, Christians must view God's word as the highest authority. 
I hope you got the little handout this morning because those will be written out for you as you're taking notes this morning. Look, if you will, at verse 1. Notice that the scene changes now. Remember in chapter 4, verse 1, what happened? John is called up to heaven, and there he sees these scenes of glory, and it's like that's where we've been. But now in chapter 10, all of a sudden, the, the, the position, if you will, the perspective, if you will, of the book changes, and John is clearly now on earth, continuing to receive these visions from God. And as he's on earth, he sees an angel coming down from heaven. And the description of this angel is awe-inspiring. So look at verse 1 and verse 2. Look how this angel is described. He's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. And he's clearly massive. So with, with one leg, he, he steps on the, the seas. And with one leg, he steps on the earth, on the land. He's poised there to deliver his message. Now, commentators give us different interpretations of kind of the different aspects, uh, descriptions of this angel. So, for instance, some will point to clouds, and they will say that clouds in Scripture are often associated with God's judgment, and so this angel is bringing a message of God's judgment. But then rainbows, you also see a rainbow there. It's, that's often associated with God's mercy. The rainbow was what was given to Noah after he was safely brought through the flood. And so the angel will also have a message of mercy for God's people. And I think that that might be correct. The cloud might speak of judgment and the rainbow might speak of mercy. But I think the main point that we're supposed to take away from this is we're just supposed to be overwhelmed by the weight and the glory of this angelic being. Uh, John's giving us a description that gets across how mighty this angel was. And this angel has a mighty message to share. Now, in fact, some commentators view this angel as so glorious that they think that we should, uh, we should say that this angel is Jesus himself. And actually, if you look at the description in chapter 10 and then in chapter 1, uh, there are some similarities between the way that the angel is described and the way that the glorified Christ is described. But I don't think we should understand this angel to be Jesus. Uh, for one thing, nowhere in Revelation, anywhere else in the book, is Christ called an angel, spoken of as an angel. Further, there are other angels who are referred to specifically as mighty. So in chapter 5 and verse 2, another mighty angel is at work. Most convincingly for me, in, chapter, in, excuse me, in verse 5 and verse 6 of chapter 10, uh, this angel is going to raise his right hand to heaven, and he's going to swear by the one who lives forever and ever. And that would be odd for Jesus to do, because Jesus is God. Uh, he is the one who lives forever and ever. So I think we should understand this to be an angel. Well, who is this angel? Well, his massive size and the fact that he so clearly reflects the glory of his master indicates that he's a high-ranking angel. Uh, that he's got an important task to do. I think it's most likely that this angel is the angel that John mentions in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the angel that Christ used to send the revelation to John. Now, in verse 2, John sees a little scroll opened in the angel's hand. And once you see the little scroll, the commentators go crazy in trying to understand exactly what is the little scroll, and there's a lot that we could say about it. Now, if you see that word scroll, and of course, as we've studied through Revelation, much of what we've seen has to do with the scroll, you would immediately think that this scroll in chapter 10 is the scroll that has already been discussed previously in, in chapter 5 and 6 and chapter 7 and 8. But many people would look at the fact that this word in the original language, in the Greek text that most scholars use, is the word for little scroll. So it's a, a different word. And they would say that means it's a 
different scroll. It's not the same scroll as the one before. So some view it as a separate prophecy of God's end-time work, his end-time agenda for the world. Others really focus on the fact that it's a little scroll, and they say, well, that means that it's a small message, and they associate it with the vision we're going to talk about next week, which is in chapter 11, verses 1 to 13 of these two witnesses, and they view that as a vision that demonstrates that God is going to protect his people during the tribulation. But I actually agree with the commentators who do view this little scroll as one and the same with the scroll from before. Let me try to give you my understanding why. So I do see them as the same scroll. First, there's textual evidence, manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, that the word should be scroll and not literal scroll. There are manuscripts that have that reading. Second, in the original language, the scroll has been opened. The idea is it's, it's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which isn't super important, other than to say that this is a scroll that had been opened in the past and continues to be opened. That's the idea. But in the book of Revelation, we only know of one scroll that had been opened, and it's the scroll that Jesus himself opened when he broke all of the seals. I think that that's important as well. The Third, and in my thinking, the strongest reason to take this view is that I understand Revelation 10 most fundamentally to be a, a recommissioning service for the Apostle John, uh, to be God's messenger of the revelation. He's being commissioned once again to proclaim the revelation to the world. So why do I view this as a recommissioning service? Take your copy of God's Word and look down to verse 11. We'll study this more later, but look at verse 11 now. Thereafter, John eats the scroll, and we'll discuss, discuss what that means. The angel says, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So John was commissioned by the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, in John chapter 1, uh, to be his mouthpiece, proclaiming the revelation. And then again, I believe in this vision, we're seeing that commissioning happening again, this time through an angel. John is once again being commissioned now to be Jesus' spokesman, and what will be the content of his message? The content of his message that he is to take in will be the scroll. And what is the scroll? The way we've identified the scroll is that it is God's end-time agenda. It is a prophecy of God's end-time agenda. That's what I understand to be happening here. John is being recommissioned to be a prophet of God. And his task is going to be to proclaim the truth uh, that all of history is going to be summed up in Christ. And that is going to include God's judgment against his enemies. In fact, much of the prophecy will be that. But it will also include mercy. Mercy on God's people who will be protected by God. Well, if you look at verse 3 and verse 4, you see the angel calls out with a voice like a roaring lion. Again, this is a mighty angel. And when he calls, he's answered by seven thunders or the seven thunders. There's an article there in the original language. This is a, a known entity, a specific entity. It's not clear who the seven thunders are. But it is clear that they speak with authority. And they give some kind of a revelation, some kind of truth. And John was about to write down that truth. But notice, right when he was about to write it down, what happens? A voice from heaven, presumably, I think God, tells him not to do that, uh, to not write it down. It says, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Now, there's, there's an important lesson for us. The Lord does have secrets. And they belong to him. Yeah, the secret things belong to the Lord. So there are some things that we will want to know, but that we can't know. 
Man in his pride wants to understand all of God's ways, but God is greater than we are. And the fact that John is commanded to seal up what the seven thunders have said means that there are some things that God does not intend for us to know. We know what God has graciously revealed. That's why scripture is so important. Uh, We're worried about what we don't know. We've been given 66 books of truth that God in his grace has revealed to us. And in this book, he's revealed to us everything we need for life and godliness. And where we don't know, we can trust him because he's trustworthy. And we bow the knee before him and we say, you're God and we're not God. We trust you on those details that you know, and we're going to follow what you've revealed. And we're going to teach it to our children as well. I think that's so important. There's an old saying that says, where scripture does not stipulate, we should not speculate. I think that's good advice. I think that's wise. Now, in verse 5 to 7, we see that the angel makes a solemn pronouncement. He raised his right hand to heaven and swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be a delay But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So here's this angel. He's solemnly swearing by the one who lives forever and ever that there will no longer be a delay. What is this? What is this? Friends, this is the answer to the prayer of the martyrs who have been crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our deaths? How long is it going to be before you establish your kingdom? How long is it going to be before you right every wrong? Well, this is the answer, right? The martyrs in chapter 6, verse 9 and 11, they've been crying out for judgment. In that vision, they're told to wait a little longer. Now, in this vision, we see, well, the time now has come for final judgment to be pouring out. There's no need to wait any longer. So when will it happen? Well, in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet. Then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, the phrase mystery of God there, I believe it refers to the consummation of all things. Uh, God's revealed agenda, which before was a mystery and unknown, has been revealed now that he's going to be wrapping up all things in Christ. What this means is that the final stage of human history had arrived. These plans, God's plans, have been told beforehand to prophets, prophets like Daniel. Prophets like Ezekiel in the Old Testament. God had revealed them to those prophets and to others. But now the time had come for all of history to be brought to an end. And that oath, brothers and sisters, listen. That oath is a reminder to us that God's final judgment will one day come. It will one day come. So uh, in 2 Peter, we are told that in the last days, scoffers, mockers will come, and they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? He said he's coming. He says he's going to do this. Where is it? How come he hasn't fulfilled his word? But, but what we're seeing here is that God's end-time agenda is not delayed. God's sovereign schedule will be kept. And when the time is right, the fullness of time, he will come, and he will bring judgment with him when he comes when he establishes his kingdom. Now, we don't know when that will be, but it could certainly be in our lifetime. And so what does the New Testament tell us? It says, be ready. It says, be watching. 
Uh, be, be good stewards that are faithful, that are working hard so that when your master comes, he finds you being faithful. That's the call for us. I don't know if the Lord's going to return in 500 years or tomorrow. I don't have the slightest clue. I do know that he's coming. And it's wise for us to be ready and watchful and prayerful, asking that he would come. I do want you to notice from this passage that the pouring out of God's final judgment will not be a one-time event. I think you see this in what the angel says. He says, seems to indicate it's going to occur over a period of time. Verse 7, in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet. It indicates there's going to be a period of time over which God's end-time agenda is going to be worked out. So, as we'll see, final judgment will involve the rise of the Antichrist, the suffering of God's people, the final pouring out of God's wrath in the bowl judgments, and the return of Christ himself to establish his kingdom. And chapter 10 is given to us in the book of Revelation as it's being unfolded to say, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. Be ready. What will John's role be? Look at verse 8. Here, verses 8 to 11, John undergoes something of a ceremony to prepare him to be the one who will prophesy about the final judgment of God, God's end-time agenda. And we read Ezekiel chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 3 earlier. Why? Because there was a very similar ceremony that took place for the prophet Ezekiel. He was being sent to the people of Israel to prophesy what? Judgment. Judgment. That was his message. And he was to take the scroll, kind of the record of the, the coming judgment, the condemnation, the woe, the sorrow, and he was to eat it. Now, a very similar ceremony takes place here where John is instructed to eat the scroll. Verse 8, a voice from heaven, presumably God, tells John to take the scroll out of the hand of the angel. One commentator pointed out that John probably would have been hesitant to go to the mighty angel to ask for the scroll, but he's encouraged by God to do that. I thought that was an important detail. John then is encouraged to go. He asks for the scroll. The angel gives him the scroll, but the angel says, take it. But when you eat it, it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. In other words, there's going to be aspects of this that are going to be pleasing to you. And there's going to be aspects of this truth that are going to be unpleasing to you. There are going to be aspects of this that are going to be great and terrible. There's aspects of this that are going to be sweet and wonderful. And your responsibility as a prophet of God, John, is to preach all of it. To proclaim all of it. And so he's being commissioned to do this. The thought that Satan... And the Antichrist would be defeated was sweet. But the thought that many tribulation saints would be murdered and martyred was bitter. Uh, the thought and proclaiming that Christ's ultimate triumph over his, enemy, over his enemies would come, that's sweet. But the thought that the vast majority of humanity in the last days will reject God's offer of forgiveness in Christ is bitter. There's more, there's more there. We'll move on. The vision of Revelation 10 shows us in the unfolding of Revelation that the time for God's final judgment has come, and we will see that in subsequent chapters. But just notice, God had given six trumpets of warnings. Six times he's giving warnings, but they're all ignored. And now what remains is judgment. You see that in the Old Testament. Again, don't you over and over the people of Israel commanded to repent of their idolatry, judgments coming, they refuse, Samaria falls. People of Judah steeped in idolatry, God tells them it's coming, it's going to be fierce, turn away from it. They refuse, judgment falls. It's this same pattern repeated at the end 
Well, having looked at this passage together, I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning focusing our hearts on four truths that this passage teaches us. First, Christians must internalize God's word. Look at verse 9. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat. Take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Again, earlier in the service, we said, you know, the prophet Ezekiel went through this same kind of ceremony, take the scroll and eat it, and he did so. And now, in the same way, John is commanded to take the scroll and eat it. And it's interesting, the word translated eat there, it literally means to devour, uh, to consume, take it down. What is this? It's really a picture of the responsibility that everyone who teaches God's word has to take God's word in, to ingest it, to absorb the truth of God's word not just for the sake of mental clarity, but so that we would be transformed by it so that we could then proclaim it to others, right? That's the picture that's here. And those of us who would teach God's word, we have that responsibility. So we're not to nibble on God's word. I'm just going to look for a verse that's going to encourage me this morning. It's nothing wrong with doing that, but why would you starve yourself from such riches? Why not read it from beginning to end? Why not take it in? Why not see all that God has given to us? We're not just to be content with scratching the surface or hearing some cliche truth. We are to read it for ourselves. And we're to memorize it. And we're to meditate on it. It's to become a part of us so that when we speak the truth of God's word to others, they're impacted by the same truths that have impacted us as well. Listen to the way this was for Jeremiah. He talked about his love for God's word. He feasted on it. He said, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart for I bear your name, Lord God of armies. And then having feasted on the truth of God's word, kind of fully absorbing that truth in our hearts, we are to proclaim that truth to others. So let me give you just a pastoral word this morning. What should you do if you're sitting here and you're feeling convicted because whenever you try to read the Bible, it just seems cold and boring and difficult? Brother or sister, if you're a Christian, the very Spirit of God lives within you, and you should by faith trust God to make His Word sweet as you read it more and more and more and you see more of the glory of Christ from one degree of glory to the next, to the next, to the next. But you will never find time for this, you see. Satan is far too busy distracting you from doing it. You have to make time that you're going to, by faith, believe that God's word is valuable, that God himself is precious, and that this is how he gives us himself. And then you make time in your life to read and to memorize and to meditate upon and think about the truth of God's word and you trust God for the emotions, you see. You trust him and you pray and you cry out and you say, your word is sweet, I believe it, make it sweet to me. And if there's sin in your life, unconfessed sin, you get rid of it, right? James chapter one says you get rid of all of the sin, all of the uncleanness so that you can then hear God's word and you repent of the sin. And then you come to God's word like a child and you read it again and you spend time with God. And brothers and sisters, all I can say is that over the course of years, my time in God's word, it's sweet. 
It's not always equally sweet. It's not always a mountaintop. Sometimes it's just, you know, a good meal. Sometimes it's really sweet, you know? Let me encourage you to be a people, and you are, praise God, but be a people that feast on God's word. Take it in. Treasure it. Andy Davis, he's the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Durham. Uh, he's an excellent example of this, unusual in many ways. The brother has memorized more than 43 books of the Bible. Put it to heart. And if you feel convicted by that, start with a verse. Praise God. Get a verse. And, but he's memorized 43. And so when you hear him preach, you can tell because God's word is in him and it just kind of overflows as he's preaching God's word. You can tell that he has internalized the truth of God's word. So let me give a word of application to all who would preach and teach God's word at Christ Fellowship. By God's grace, many of you are involved in doing that. Uh, throughout the week, we have many Bible studies that are happening. We have community groups that are occurring. Uh, just this morning, we had two equipping our classes. Some of you began teaching in that format for the first time. Some of you desire to be pastors at some point in the future, and you're praying and asking God to do that good work in your heart. Friends, the application is that like John, you must eat God's word. You must study it deeply. You must be transformed by it so that you can preach it to others. And while you're doing that, pray for me, pray for Bryce, for the other pastors of our church, that we would likewise never make this just academic. It so easily becomes academic when it's your job. Pray that it wouldn't be like that for us, but it would be sweet to us so that as we study it, we are impacted by what we're learning so that we can then teach you. There's a second truth this morning. Christians must proclaim all of God's word. Look at verse 10. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So John, again, he's obedient to this vision. He takes a scroll and he eats it. And what does he discover? Well, it's what the angel had promised. It was sweet in his mouth, but then it made him bitter in his stomach. And again, we said John found this message of God's end-time judgment to be mixed. Uh, this, God's purposes were mixed. It's a message of salvation. It's also a message of suffering. There are sweet parts of it. There are bitter parts of it. Like all believers, John wanted uh, the Lord to come and act in judgment and establish his kingdom. That's sweet. Your kingdom come. That's sweet. Those are sweet thoughts that that's going to happen. But, but John also realizes that God's plan for the consummation of all things includes hard and difficult things, bitter things like the everlasting judgment of billions of men and women who will reject Christ. They're just too busy living their life trying to get as much as they can in this quickly dying world. And they turn their back on Jesus, the only Savior. And the Bible is so clear, friend, that judgment is coming. For all who reject Christ. Still, what was John's responsibility? It was to proclaim all of it. He was to proclaim the sweet things. He was to proclaim the hard and difficult and bitter things. And that's the responsibility that we have as a church. We can't only proclaim the gentle things. You know, the love and the mercy and the kindness of God. Praise God for his love and his mercy and his kindness. We must proclaim that. That is life to us. We must also preach the bitter truths and the hard things. Like the judgment of God against sinners who love their sin more than they love Jesus. Many churches in our day are failing to do this. That's just true. The, the current strategy for many churches is that we're going to just preach on the sweet parts. 
the love of God and the mercy of God and the welcome of God. And so they preach on that and they, they preach uplifting sermons or what they would consider to be uplifting sermons. And really, again, hear me, those are sweet truths. We want to cherish the fact that our God is loving and gracious and good. Praise God for that. But we can't only preach God's love. We must also preach his wrath. Why? Because people are under his wrath and they need to get out from under it. They need to turn from their sins so that they can find a, a savior. So we must be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God. I do think that in our day, more and more churches are beginning to compromise in this. I think of Andy Stanley's church, North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia. About a year ago, they baptized an openly gay man who had no intention of, repent, of repenting from his sin. He had just decided you can be a Christian and you can pursue sexual sin as well. And they openly baptized him after he gave a similar testimony. What, what is that? Well, I think it's just a matter of just over time. It's this, it's this compromise of we're only going to focus on the sweet and the gentle. And over time, what happens is you just veer off until ultimately you're leading people into judgment. It's a sad but increasingly common example of compromise. And brothers and sisters, compromise occurs over time. It's very possible for Christ fellowship to compromise if we're not faithful to God's word. Like we can do this. And so by God's grace, we need to stay on course preaching the whole counsel of God and not getting off course. We cannot compromise. One way that we preach the hard, the bitter, and the sweet parts of God's word is by proclaiming the gospel every week. What is, what is it? It contains bitter truth, right? We were made by God to know him, to love him, to have a relationship with him. But our first parents, they rejected him. Adam and Eve, they decided to be better to live for themselves. And so they sinned against God. We sent in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same nature. And it's a nature of rebellion against God. And what that rebellion looks like, most especially, is not an overt atheism, though it does sometimes look like that. But mostly, it just looks like I want to be the center of my life. I want to live how I want to live. I don't want, to tell, I don't want anyone else to tell me what I'm supposed to do or think or how I'm supposed to act. I'm going to be king of my own universe. And that's, that's the heart of sin I will be king of my life, not God. And we all do it in a hundred different ways. We've all sinned in this way. And the Bible teaches very clearly that the wages of sin are death. Those who reject God, they will face his judgment for their rejection of God. And that's a hard truth, isn't it? Uh, to think that the day will come when many will stand before God and they will hear, depart from me, you workers of righteousness. And forever and ever and ever, they will live under the wrath of God, workers of unrighteousness. They'll live under the wrath of God for their rebellion. But isn't it sweet to know that God has provided the answer to that dilemma? We can't save ourselves, but the sweetness of the gospel is Jesus. Uh, that God came into this world, the eternal son of God became a man, Jesus Christ. That he lived among us, living a perfect life, the kind of life we should have lived, but we failed to live. Uh, and then in, in the greatest act of love and sacrifice and humility and obedience ever, he lays down his life on the cross as a substitute for sinful people like us. He dies under the wrath of God. But then three days later, he rises, showing that his father had accepted his perfect sacrifice. 
And now the sweet truth of the gospel is this. If you will turn from living for yourself, if you'll repent of your sin and turn away from your sin, and instead uh, put all of your life on Christ, all of your weight on Him, trust in Him and Him alone, His perfect life taken as a substitute for your imperfect life. His punishment on the cross now being kind of credited to you so that you don't have to bear the weight of your own sin. If you will receive this free offer of salvation, you can be saved this morning. There's no sweeter truth than that. Then that salvation is a free gift. In Christ's fellowship, we must be faithful to proclaim this gospel and to continue to proclaim this gospel. And friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you want to know more about the gospel, I would encourage you to talk with someone around you or come talk with me after the service. We'd love to talk with you about Jesus and what he's done for us and what he can do for you. There is no more important thing that you can do with your life than finding out if Jesus is who he says he is. Because he is. He's Lord. And he loves you. And you are invited to salvation this morning. So seek him. Here's a third truth. Christians must proclaim God's word to everyone. So we must proclaim all of God's word, but we must also proclaim God's word to everyone. Look at verse 11. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So here, John is told to whom he must prophesy. Peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Those words, peoples, nations, and languages, they occur five times in Revelation. And they refer to all the peoples of the world, kind of taking in all the peoples of the earth. And that's the point. You see, John's message wasn't just for a few people. His message was for all the people of the world, because God's end-time agenda pertained to all of them. Now, our message is not precisely the same as John's, though it includes that. We do tell people about the coming judgment of God, but we do have a message that we have been entrusted. And that message that we have been entrusted with, that we're to proclaim to all nations is what? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message that we just shared, that there's salvation in Jesus. Our fundamental mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Just this morning, I was in the equipping hour class on discipleship, and John Koch was helping us think about what is a disciple? And what does it mean to disciple? And we're thinking about this mission that we've been given. And it includes sharing the gospel with those who don't know Jesus so that they can come to know Jesus. And then those who do know Christ, we're helping them grow in Christ-likeness. And Christ Fellowship Church, we are in Williamsburg because God wants us to be here to accomplish that mission. That's what we're here for, to accomplish that mission in this place that we would be helping people who don't know Christ to come and know him, and then we would be helping people grow in their relationship. But as a church, and even though we're a small church, by God's grace, we want to have a bigger vision than just Williamsburg. Uh, we want to see churches revitalized in our area. Uh, we're partnering with the Pillar Church Network for that purpose, so we can see churches that are struggling. We can see them be revitalized and become healthy expressions of a local church, and we want to see new churches planted, and we're going to be strategically working towards those objectives in the years to come. And then we want to proclaim the gospel overseas as well, because God can take little things, and he can use them in great ways. And so we want to proclaim the gospel. And, and next year, Lord willing, we're going to have several, church, uh, several trips that will go to other nations. We're planning about that. We're praying about that. We're asking the Lord to provide for that. Why? Because we want to take this message of the cross to places where it's not known. 
and share it with others. Pray about that. Pray that God would give us wisdom. Pray that God would give the elders wisdom as we think together about how our church can be strategic to proclaim God's word to everyone in Williamsburg, in Hampton Roads, even among the nations. I wonder if the Lord won't be pleased to raise up young men and women who will leave behind this nation in order to go to other nations and share the gospel. So we just met Luke and Emily this morning. That's what they're doing. They're leaving this nation, their nation, in order to go to another people, in order to share Christ with them. And what a good thing to do. I mean, young people, listen, you're often told that what you need to do is you need to study hard and you need to go to college and you need to get a good career and you need to have a home and have, raise a family and retire. And you know what? The Lord's will for, for most people is that we would live in the nation where we're born and we would work and we would be faithful followers of Jesus here. But he does call many out for the sake of going to the nations. And I wonder if that's you. I wonder if the Lord's going to do that work in your heart. That one day you'll leave this nation in order to take the best possible message to people who don't know about Christ. Maybe to a city where there's 200,000 people or a million people, but there's no gospel witness. That would be a great use of your life. Uh, and as a church, we want to have a category for that, that our only concern is not that our young people would be successful. We want them to be servants of Jesus. And if King Jesus takes them to the nations, we want to rejoice in that. And we want to send them prayerfully, tearfully, joyfully, and support them in any way we can. Let's pray that God would do that in our church. Here's a fourth truth. Christians must view God's word as the highest authority. Look at, the, at verse 11 again. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And just a moment ago, we said that the words, peoples, nations, and languages, that they, they recur in Revelation five times. But usually they're accompanied by another word, and that word is tribes. But this is the one time in Revelation that that word tribes is replaced with kings. So, so why is that? Well, in my opinion, the word kings is used here because it makes an important point. It makes the point that God's word has authority over kings. Now, who are kings in John's day? They're the highest human authority. What they say goes. What they do, that's what must be done. But now, John has given this message, and it's a message that is to be proclaimed to kings so that they would hear it, so that they would obey it. Why? Because the highest authority is no human individual, but it is God. And he mediates his authority through his word. Brothers and sisters, God's word is our highest authority. That's so vital for us to remember because our culture is growing darker. And the day may come, which already is occurring in some ways, where it's much more difficult to be a faithful Christian, particularly in the area of what the Bible teaches on sexuality. It's very difficult to be a public Christian without facing persecution one level or another for being that. And the days may come, we don't know the future, but the day may come when the government is not pleased to have local churches preaching the whole counsel of God. Well, what are we to do? We'll have a choice in that day. We can decide, well, we're just going to be quiet about those things because we don't want to get into trouble. But I pray we won't do that. 
I pray we'll remember that God's word is the highest authority. And whether we are talking to servants or to kings, any level of authority, God's word is what goes. So may this church always be a church that has at its very core identity the understanding that the ultimate authority is not what any man says. The ultimate authority is what God says. And we are those who, like John, have been entrusted with the responsibility to take God's word in deeply so that we can proclaim its truth to others, so that God might be glorified, so that they might be saved. And so that our lives would count. Don't you want your life to count? Don't you want this church to make an impact for generations? God can do that. And I trust he will do that as we continue to stand on his word. Well, brothers and sisters, we've seen this recommissioning service where John is called to proclaim God's word to the world. He was to take the truth and eat it. He was to absorb it and be transformed by it so that he could proclaim it to others. And we've been reminded that that's our task as well. And that's what we're entrusted with. We are entrusted with the truth of the living God. So may we be faithful to do that, even in this coming week. And let's pray.